the thing is, like, I hate that movie, but I also really enjoy it because Tom Hanks is enjoyable to watch in the movie. Right. And so is Gary Sinise and Sally Fields. And, like, pretty much everyone in the movie is a good actor. Absolutely. And they're doing a fantastic job with what is a deeply, deeply flawed premise. And, yeah, disturbing in a number of ways. And Jenny's a monster. There, I said it. She's a monster, but she's also... God, she just gets the short end of the stick everywhere. The, The central message of the movie, to me, is if you are a blissful idiot, you can soar through life like a feather on the wind... And only good things will happen to you. There'll be moments that are turbulent, but overall, you'll end up a rich millionaire with a with a cool son. If you are in any way interested in bucking the system, you end up dead from AIDS. Right. And there's also another, even worse, like noxious, toxic sub message to that movie, which is sitting on a bus bench and talking to strangers is in any way okay. Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. Every morning, my systems come online at a normal hour. I break my charging fast with solid fuel derived from plants and animals and put on my durable leg coverings one ambulatory limb at a time, just like you. With me is Chris, who is also here. (laughs) Mornings, am I right? (laughs) Yeah. Somebody's got a case of the Fridays. Is that what it is? Well, I think in this very specific instance, yes. Oh. But in the more general cultural context, also yes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. Help. No, I'm going to let you twist in the wind on this one. <laughs> That's fair. That's fine. I'll be doing a lot of twisting in the wind in general. Uh, which I listened to They Might Be Giants Flood recently, you know. Uh, the whole album all the way through, and it it's, it really, really holds up. Continues to be great. Fantastic. It's 30 years old. Still great. Which is more than you can say for most 30-year-olds. I know, right? <laughs> all right, well, uh, let's talk about some tech garbage. Let's indeed. Today's topic is we're all developers now, and you might as well admit it. So this is something I've been sort of chewing on for a little while. I've heard various opinions from people on how to approach the topic. Uh, And I think from the the too long, not going to listen, you know, if that's sort of what you're into, is you are also a developer even if you think you aren't. But what if I have all these cool t-shirts that say not a developer? Still a developer. And developers are, and then a frowny face. Yeah, yeah, you can have that and still be a developer. And we'll get into that, the the natural, I won't say natural, the clash that happens between what is commonly thought of the ops folks and the dev folks. Right. And that's been, I mean, that's been a, an unfortunate and unnecessary um, dissonance between those two groups of people, when really what we need to do is come together and gang up on the network people. I mean, that is clear. And security. Don't forget about security. Easy. <laughs> uh, I guess if we're really going to get mad at anyone, it's going to be sales. That's fair. <laughs> as a concept, maybe not as individual people. So I, I want to kind of like back up. And I, when I say back up, we're going back to when I was, you know, seven and in second grade. 
So that's how far back we're going. So, it, so the mid fifties. It's the mid fifties. It's the it's the dawn of the nineteenth century, and the even, abacus has fallen out of fashion. We're wearing onions on our belts, like e- you do. Even your collared shirt has a collared shirt. Yes, well, of course, and starched, obviously. And I had my first encounter with programming, and this was some some people may remember this the turtle programming language wherein you were controlling what looked like a turtle on screen and it had a pen that it could pick up or put down and you would give it instructions on how to move around the screen and whether or not to have the pen put down or pulled up and so you could draw things but you had to give it instructions you know go up 10 go turn 90 degrees go 10 put pen down and from that you could draw all manner of things this just sounds like the world's most boring video game. Well, yes, now it would be very, 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 very boring. But at When time, does the turtle die of dysentery? <laughs> that was going to be a few more years. <laughs> a few more iterations of, uh, of the computing platform. Because I don't know, this had to be like an Apple IIe or something that I was doing this on. The turtle has discovered Manifest Destiny. Oh, crap. <laughs> the turtle has annexed New Mexico. <laughs> Most turtles do that. It's... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. Okay. Um, so that was my first encounter with programming. And I think because the turtle language was very similar to basic, it was a few years later that they taught us basic in a, in a computing class that was not like a, a class that went through the entire school year. I think it was branched off as part of library. So like for a month as part of library, we went into the computer lab and learned basic. And most people did not care. But I was very interested. This tracks. This all tracks. Yeah, I know. I know. Fast forward to middle school. The World Wide Web is still not a thing yet. Or at least not a thing that I'm aware of. But I did encounter a program called Hyper Studio that had hyper cards in it. And what that meant is you could add these bits of text that would then link to a different hyper card. Right. And those hypercards could do things like play a sound or show you a picture. It was very like pre-web, but you could see where this is going sort of thing. Well, that was the original thing that Berners-Lee put together, right? The idea being, you, you remember why this happened. He put those cards and stuff together because he forgot details about people. <laughs> really? So he had little links that he could click on in these cards that would say, Ned, age, undisclosed. Yes. Origination, undisclosed. So his cards aren't very informational. Yeah. But Serial can... number 1B78946XYZ. Which is a long serial number. I know. That's why we shortened it to Ned. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, that is my given name. For a my hilarious story. Ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. So that's when I got into what would be more thought of as graphical or higher level programming, right? Whereas basic was... Very basic. Right. This was more, hey, visual and interactive and interesting. And then I didn't really do any programming until I got to college. In which we learned Java. Because that was what you did at the time. I know. It was very popular. And (laughs) the one class I took, they actually, for the one of the exams, you wrote your Java code on paper. (laughs) And you submitted that. Did they ding you for syntax? Oh, yeah. They did. 
as sadly, I also remember that. Um, I didn't do any official classes in programming in school until college. Mm-hmm. I did on my own, you know, just natural genius type things. Um, got to college, and we started with C and C++, completely ignoring Java because I wanted to respect myself in the morning. It's understandable, yeah. But yeah, that first class, same thing. You had to write it out. I think we had to write it out on graph paper. And like Probably. indentation was a thing. Yeah. And it, it was not pseudocode. It was the actual code. Right. Part of that was a lack of resources in terms of computer labs. But also part of that was teachers are bastards. Yeah. I believe that the teacher was saying that if we were able to submit it electronically, we would all just cheat. And then Stack Overflow happened. Right. <laughs> so he wasn't wrong. Uh, and then later on, I learned C and assembly for in two different classes. Assembly was more of a, hey, this is fun to play around with. You'll never use this. No. no. Um, and then that culminated in my capstone project for my bachelor's degree where I wrote a web application in C Sharp and ASP using .NET Framework 1. Jeez. 1. And SQL. Because, of course. Why not? So, what I want to draw from this bit larger... Uh, experience of programming and developing things is for me during this entire period there was no distinction between the operation of the hardware my interaction with it and the writing of the application to me that was all part and parcel of the same function i was writing code on a computer and then i would deliver that code in some way and manage it i wasn't thinking that there would be a whole separate teams dedicated to supporting some component of the hardware you were just computering i was computering yeah like you do now what i learned is when i uh started working for a a company where i was doing desktop support and also doing night classes for this capstone course talking to the actual developers like software developers at the company and asking them questions to help get my code right taught me that i was not a real developer yet in the sense that i had a lot to learn right which was fine. And it's also like that's where the distinction starts to happen. Right. Oh, that's a developer. <laughs> right. Oh, okay. So I'm doing this completely wrong. I'm not doing any sanitation of inputs. Like, you know, I was making some pretty common mistakes that you hopefully unlearn as you become a better software developer. What's a module? Oh, yeah. God. Oh, dear. The other thing that I, I learned in that job was that there were people who supported the desktops and the server infrastructure. And because it was a small organization, there were three of us supporting everything that was not application development. And we also had to support the application developers with their machines and the deployment of their code when they were doing upgrades. But not a ton. It was more like, give me a machine that has these specs and this stuff installed on it and then get out of my way. So we didn't have a true ops team that was installing the application like you'll hear in like the intro to the Phoenix Project or something where they throw it over the wall. No, it was, it was more like, get out of my way. Let me do this, kid. Um, prior, But like the thing is, prior to that job, I didn't really know there should be a distinction or a difference between developers and ops people. That job and then subsequent jobs after that at bigger organizations that had more specialization taught me 
for good or bad, that there is a strict division between the infrastructure people and the developers. And that also you don't like devs. Right. Yeah, and that's really what happens is the key word I feel like is move to a bigger organization. Because as a smaller shop, if it's a place that has three employees, guess what? (laughs) Everyone does everything. Right. When you get to a point where you have 30 or 300 or 3,000 employees, first of all, you have the luxury of having people specialize. Mm -hmm. But it also becomes a necessity in terms of how else do you distinguish when you're working at that scale. Right. And there's also, it, it is generally more efficient at that point to specialize and have people that are really good at a particular thing. Right. But then just because people are people, there's also political implications there. And I don't mean political like Democrats and Republicans. I just mean the fact that people have to interact with each other and make decisions. Right. And since devs are the worst. Oh, wait, we're not talking like that. Sorry. No, no. We're being, we're being kind. We're being diplomatic. Devs oh. used to be the worst. So there was a division between what was considered the developers and what was considered the infrastructure people, and the enmity between those two was palpable. You could feel it. Mm-hmm. Even though you might like each other outside the context of work when a work-related task came up, especially the heads of the ops and dev departments would butt heads a lot. Right. And then that example being shown at the leadership level trickled down to the folks who were working under each division. Right, because then it also becomes a larger question about like territory and uh, <laughs> you know, my opinion is the best opinion. And people that don't, you know, people that are part of that team that maybe don't do their due diligence will say crazy things like my dev box needs 16 gigs of RAM and eight CPUs and there's no two conversations about it. Right, which then leads us infrastructure people to roll our eyes right, and go, you don't need that, you silly person. You will have one CPU and 0.5 gigs of RAM, and you will like it. That's right. And that's how you make friends in the cafeteria. <laughs> Indeed. Now, that also led to sort of a situation where being an infrastructure person, you took pride in not being a developer because developers were a bad thing. They were also magic wizards who did stuff that always broke, and then they had an incantation that would fix it. They felt the same about us, right. I want to say. But that feeling of, I don't, I don't trust you, I don't like you, and I don't want to be like you, kind of fueled into this, I'm not a developer. Right, and they drank Mountain Dew Code Red. We drank regular Mountain Dew. Yeah, like it's God intended. Talk about a bridge too far. <laughs> <laughs> ranch Doritos out of my face. So I was also a Windows admin. Well, nobody's perfect. (laughs) So to a certain degree, a lot of the Windows software was very built up around folks who did not have a software development background, were not comfortable hand editing configuration files or getting deep into the guts of things and were very happy to click next, 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 finish. And you could get by as a Windows admin with just those skills to a certain point. Now, I was fortunate enough to have a background from college and everything where I was somewhat comfortable with programming languages. Right. You could also click next, next, continue, finish. Whoa. Totally different. No, there was a box you could check that said advanced options. 
and then it would take you to a whole other GUI. And that would just say select all. Yes. Yeah. Why? Why would you not? It's like a master's degree in Windows right now that we're having for everyone. <laughs> a master class. See, <laughs> you too can install Windows 2003. <laughs> and oh man, there's somebody at some Fortune 500 that's going. Hmm. Really? Yeah. And VMware was an extension of that. VMware was also very much once you got to like version four four dot one was very much a next next finish. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then here's a web in it. Well, wasn't it was a thick client interface that would give you a graphical way of controlling everything in your virtualization environment. And to a certain point, you could live entirely in that GUI and not care until you hit any kind of scale. <laughs> but I digress. Now that like for me, there were three big changes that happened that really turned that whole thing on its head from an infrastructure management standpoint. The first one was PowerShell. Finally, Windows admins had a scripting language that could do things that wasn't writing batch files. Right. Because batch files are awful. And this was a huge... It's, I think it's hard for people to understand who weren't around at the time how much of an advancement this was. This was Exchange 2007 introduced PowerShell to the masses. Right. And... Some people, exchange admins, were not very happy about this because up until that point, they had mostly been working in a GUI with only occasionally having to drop into the command line when something went really wrong with one of the JET databases. But other than that, you were mostly like chilling in an interface and all of a sudden, Microsoft is telling you some of the functionality you can't even get to in the GUI anymore, you have to run PowerShell. Right, which is just absolutely outrageous i had a very long conversation on a drive to connecticut with another exchange admin and they were deriding powershell and how it was stupid and that he shouldn't need to learn it and i was like all right well i guess you're not gonna be an exchange admin for very long <laughs> yeah and it was another thing that really kind of cut the difference between a linux admin and a windows admin because mm -hmm. linux for years since it began had really powerful shell scripting just built in the shell script is the shell that you use, which is a far cry from CMD on Windows. <laughs> yeah. In terms of functionality, in terms of miniature automation, in terms of building little tiny things to make your job easier, right. you could now do that with PowerShell, where you really couldn't without installing something else right. on a Windows system before. Yeah, and as someone who didn't come up through the Linux side of things... I didn't have Bash to fall back on when I needed to automate something. So I ended up using things like Perl. Right. Active but, Perl that you had to install as a separate program. Exactly. Whereas if I'd been in a more Linux environment, then I would probably be running Bash or some other shell, and I would have all these other helper tools that were just kind of available by default on most systems, unless you really strip them down. And those were super useful utilities to get things done in the command line. Right. Windows, I won't say completely lacked it, but... It was not nearly as intuitive. Well, I don't want to say intuitive because those Linux tools are not intuitive. But it wasn't as readily available. And there certainly wasn't the community around right. that. Well, Windows, I don't think it's controversial to say Windows was just not built for that. Right. And PowerShell was the first thing that came around where they were like, we should lean into this because this is a good idea. And lean into it they did. And I leaned with them and became really proficient at PowerShell for a good long while. Um so much so that a lot of the interaction I did with Exchange, uh, Active Directory, and VMware was 
exclusively through PowerShell. Right. And the, like the Power CLI for, for VMware. And that was fantastic because now I could automate common tasks and make my life that much easier. And eliminate mistakes. Hopefully. Or make them at scale. <laughs> Either one was available. Why break one computer when you can break 5,000? <laughs> right. So that was one big change was PowerShell's introduction to me and the fact that I already had some software development experience in the background. I felt very comfortable with the idea of writing a function or a library and then invoking that to yeah. get something done. The next big change was config management tools that came out for managing infrastructure at scale. And now I'm talking about Puppet and Chef and Ansible, all of those tools that kind of rolled out that allowed you to define things in code that would impact your infrastructure and the applications installed on your operating system. Right. That was huge. That also let you do things at scale and script things out and also kind of close the loop on things. Now I'm not just issuing a command one time to stand things up. I have something that has a get, test, and set loop that continuously can run in the background and make sure that my systems stay in the configuration that I want them to be in. Right, and prove it. Right. Because you can run this repeatedly. Is configuration file matching hash ABC? Yes, no. If mm -hmm. no, fix it. <laughs> exactly. Now, a lot of those didn't rely on an API to be available for that, that loop because one didn't exist for a lot of the software that you were trying to deploy. So instead, it was literally doing things like running SSH to connect to a remote system and then running a series of commands on that remote system. Or you had an agent that was essentially doing the same thing. And so you, there was a lot of additional work you had to do to interact with, the, with that software. And then the third big change was cloud. Cloud came along, and now I have APIs. And those APIs I can interact with, and they're well-documented. They follow that get, set, and test pattern. And I can use some of my configuration management tools or all new tools to script out the deployment and management of my infrastructure environment. And crap, this sort of sounds like I'm a developer now. I mean, what we've been dancing around is a phrase that really shows exactly how far we've blurred the lines, which is infrastructure as code. There we are. Or I've also heard it called more uh, increasingly infrastructure as software. That's dumb. Sorry, there's a, there's a I, I have decreed, sir. All right, fine. I'd <laughs> say so there's a larger conversation <laughs> we probably don't have time for around that. Um, but anyway, so yes, infrastructure as code was sort of the, hey, you are a developer. <laughs> You're writing your infrastructure as code. Uh, but the, the problem at this point is now we've moved from, you know, 2003 or so when I was really getting into this stuff to 2012, 13, 14 where the battle lines had been very much drawn in the organizations between developers and infrastructure people. So although infrastructure people were now becoming developers, you couldn't call yourself a developer for the reasons that we've talked about before. Mountain Dew Code Red? Yes. And no. Cool Ranch Doritos. I'm just not going to drink it, man. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's. I will meet you at the uh, sweet and spicy chili Doritos. Those are delicious. But I, I just, uh, Cool Ranch is a bridge too far for me, man. 
Sorry. Everybody has their limits. So I think there's actually two things kind of going on here. One was the, there was the animosity between developers and ops. So as an ops person, you didn't want to admit you were essentially a developer now for, you know, personal pride reasons. But also I think there was a certain level of imposter syndrome going on there because the development side did seem like wizards who were doing magical things with code, scary things. And because I don't write Node.js or C++ or Go or whatever, and I'm not building applications, I'm building infrastructure, I can't really be a dev. And if I made that claim, someone would call me out on it. Right. And that's really the thing. Because even if you write a little helper script for yourself, mm -hmm. you're doing something in a coding language or a programming language. Like you said, you've done real compilable things in C. In your own head, you're like, that doesn't mean I'm a developer. It just means that I'm developing software for myself. Oh, wait, uh, what? Wait, wait. Oh, damn it. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> and the fact that some, I won't say all by any means, but some developer communities had a gatekeeping mentality made it that much more difficult because being called out was a very real concern, and you could see people getting called out for their lack of programming knowledge. Sure. So if you already had a little bit of that imposter syndrome going on, that was only going to exacerbate it. And also, software development is a little scary. There is concepts that, as an infrastructure person, you're just not familiar with. The software development lifecycle. You know, uh, Agile and Scrum versus the waterfall uh, design. Git and version source control. Test-driven test development. CI and CD, like all of these terms that you hear thrown out by the DevOps community or just developers, that's all stuff that infrastructure people are not familiar with and thus not comfortable with. Right. It's scary. Yeah, and I think the other part of that in terms of the scary is because it is so abstract, mm -hmm. because it's isolated concepts that are non-graphical and non-physical, it's really tough to wrap your mind around it. I really feel like, at least maybe I should speak in I statements. But for me, when, it, when I work on these things, it's like, this is stupid, this is stupid, this is impossible, this is dumb, I hate it. Oh, I get it. Yeah. And that will happen over and over and over as you go into each concept. And it won't happen right away. Because when you read the documentation for Git, your eyes go crossed and you have to go lay down for a while. But then you actually start using it. And if you start using it with other people and collaborating... Now you see, oh, I understand what the reasoning behind why these things exist. And they don't exist just to exhaust me. They some exist, of them, I think. Some of them do. Yeah. It's like when you look at all the switches that are available for a Linux command, and you're like, really? There's some Git commands that are like that. But for the most part, it makes sense. You're like, oh, yeah, if I'm working in a large group and we're trying to maintain an application... I understand why we need branches and why I might want to cherry pick commits from another branch to bring them into mind without merging the whole thing. And like, okay, like I kind of get it now. But that's, when you're first starting out, all that seems foreign and weird and not natural at all. Right. Which any development person who's tried to move into the world of infrastructure knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's just different things. <laughs> but I think kind of what I said at the beginning is that we're all developers now. The modern way of interacting with infrastructure is through some kind of scripting or code. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the de facto going forward. You can fight it, and maybe you might even be able to retire on that fight if you're sufficiently advanced in your uh, career. And situated. 
Yes. But for anybody who's up and coming through the infrastructure side of things, they're going to be del delving into code. And honestly, they probably are going to have more in common with a Go programmer who's working on, you know, writing a backend system than someone who's, than that Go programmer would have with someone who's writing CSS for a website. Yeah, that's true. I mean, now you're just sort of splitting the difference between not programmer versus non-programmer or developer versus non-developer. It's what are you developing for? Right. Because they are vastly different. This is front end versus back end. It's two sides of the same developer coin. Mm -hmm. It really just comes down to what's important to your job description. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're trying to accomplish a goal in a way that is efficient. And code's probably going to be the way to do that. But yeah, the way that you go about it is going to vary wild, wildly depending on what your end goal is. So yeah, I think what we have to bear in mind is we all have something to learn from each other regardless of whether you're coming from the dev side or the infrastructure side. And this really hard division between the two is unhelpful and illusory. And it's disappearing whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah, so like the fog's rolling in, people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're all just going to be confused together. Um, and devs, they're not the enemy. And they're not godlike deities. They're just someone who has a different skill set than you. In the same way that an accountant has a different skill set than me. There's less overlap between me and an accountant. <laughs> the accountant can do math, for example. Precisely. I mean... One would hope they were doing their math precisely. Indeed. Because they're accountants. I get it. I get words. It's a taxes joke. Oh, I hate you. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, there's, there's certainly differences, but I think we have more in common than we have different when it comes to developers and infrastructure folks. Now, what can you do if you're not deep into the code yet today? I think what you should do is learn to code, and I don't mean learning how to write a specific language. I don't mean going out and learning Python for the sake of learning Python or C Sharp or whatever language you want and it goes popular, whatever. What you should really be learning about if you're on the infrastructure side and this stuff makes you a little uncomfortable is learn about software development practices and how you could integrate those into your process. Yeah, and I think that that's actually the key because if you just try to learn something abstractly for the sake of it, there are some people that really do enjoy that. I'm not trying to take that away from people, but from a practical perspective, you're going to learn better and faster and retain more if it follows up with, and what can this do for me? Yes. <laughs> the reason you probably learned Perl or how to write a batch file or any of those things was there was a need and you fulfilled that need through technology and now you know that thing. But right. if you were just abstractly trying to learn Perl... Great, I can find cat in a long text file. Awesome. How is that useful? You know other scripting languages have regular expressions, right? No, I'm pretty sure they don't. <laughs> Sounds like something a developer would say. Right. So learn about the software development practice. Learn about things like source control. Learn about CI, continuous integration. What is that? What are the steps in there? How could that apply to what I do with my infrastructure practice? What is continuous deployment? How does that integrate into my existing infrastructure management process? Could it make it better, faster, more resilient, less mistakes? Yeah, awesome. Integrate it. Right. No, then don't use it. You don't have to use everything. 
Yeah, there's a guarantee. I will guarantee you, if you work in infrastructure, there are tasks that you do repeatedly. And if you do them more than once, <laughs> they can be scripted. Yes. And while the argument can be made that maintaining a script is going to be another task, assuming that you have to do that task multiple times a week, the payoff is going to be greater than the uh, burden of maintaining that script. Right. So, yeah, there is a trade-off there, certainly. But especially if you can share that script with other people at your job, now you've also lightened the load for them as well. And that means they owe you. Yes. So buy me a beer, Barry. God damn it. <laughs> so if this is of interest to you and you're trying to make that transition or you want to accelerate that transition, a couple recommendations. Check out GitHub Skills. It's a, I, think, I don't know how long it's been around, but it's basically, hey, we're going to walk you through a series of exercises to learn more about software development. Okay. Uh, also, free freecodecamp.org. You will never guess what they do. <laughs> they teach you to make beignets. Nailed it. Absolutely. No, I mean, online, there are tons of free resources that are specific to your needs. And I know you're sitting there saying, but you don't know what my needs are. And I reply, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the resources exist. Have you met the internet? Do you know how many subreddits there are? Too many. <laughs> so yes, guaranteed there will be something that matches up to what you're trying to learn and will make you better as an operations person. Right. Like, for example, Free Code Camp has specific use cases. There's like two dozen of them. Mm -hmm. But one of them is like machine learning with Python. That's going to be a very small amount of people that need that. But for the people that need it, it's there. It's made for them. Absolutely. Uh, likewise, most of the cloud companies have some sort of learning platform. I know Microsoft has the whole Microsoft Learn platform that gives you sandboxed environments for free to learn something. And yes, you are going to be learning about Azure. And maybe that doesn't particularly interest you. But there are larger lessons that you'll draw from what they're teaching you. Right. Also, YouTube has a ridiculous amount of free and sometimes high-quality content. Luckily, it's easy to kind of tell. Yes, within the first five minutes or even sometimes 30 seconds of watching a video, you can tell whether that person is an experienced instructor that is going to help you learn something or if they are just rambling incoherently like me. Sorry, I zoned out. What were you saying? I forget. <laughs> so yeah, you can make that judgment pretty quickly. And if you see people publishing their five-hour course on Python for free on YouTube, just remember, sometimes you do get what you pay for. Yes. But you also didn't pay anything for it. <laughs> right. And honestly, the, the other thing is, with that amount of variability, some people are going to teach in a way that appeals to you. Some people aren't. So right. they could be high quality, just not for you. Mm -hmm. Just look at one of the other 15,000 classes on learning how to, how to Python. Exactly, exactly. So go learn something. I guess that's probably... Right now. Damn it. Pull over your car. <laughs> or don't, you know, whatever. You could put it in, in auto drive. I'm sure that'll work out fine. It's not going to get recalled or anything. No. Lightning round? <laughs> Lightning round. All right. USB-C wins. Woo! European Union mandates standardization in wired charging by 2024. Oh. <sighs> 
finally reaching a consensus on an issue that has been on the table for 10 freaking years, the EU has decided USB-C is the way to go. Tim Apple must be beside himself. While this is a win for the standardize and simplify because this doesn't need to be so hard and dongles are stupid crowd, there are dissenters that have points that deserve at least a cursory airing. Yeah. Since this is a lightning round, we will summarize the top few in a quick point counterpoint. The standardization will stifle innovation, man. <gasps> innovation is happening in wireless. Many manufacturers are working on a 100% sealed phone anyway. USB-C has demonstrably more capacity than we could ever need for those relatively simple tasks. If charging cable innovation does come, the standard can be updated, but we shouldn't need to because of the first two points. In any event, the charging cable is the last place. Consumers are going to give a crap about innovation. In fact, they actively hate it. <laughs> How does this help the environment? Now I just have to throw away all these other cables. That is a sunk cost fallacy. This stops new, pointless, proprietary cables from being developed and built in the future. The ruling says if the device is just the first of many that are going to stifle the market, next they'll say phones have to be all the same size so we don't waste material on different size phone cases. Oh, so now it's a gateway drug fallacy with a little bit of think of the children thrown in? Certain standards have always provided a bedrock for large product bases. Think of the 3, 4, 5G standards and how inefficient things were before wireless standards existed. Think of TCP IP. Won't somebody please? TCP was pointless without the IP. Hmm. The ruling also extends to other devices such as laptops. However, these larger and more complex devices have 40 months instead of 24 afforded to cell phone builders. S however, since the move to USB-C has been even more aggressive in the laptop space lately, I anticipate it being compliant pretty quickly. As is tradition, the bloviating, woe is me, contrarian whine, I mean, controversy about this issue will probably just vanish after people get used to one cable, which will rule and charge them all. I do like the magnetic charge cable on my Surface laptop. They are good. Because I have children. R do you? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> the sun also sets on Atom. Before there was VS Code, there was Atom, the IDE. If you were looking for a lightweight development environment that supported linting and had plugins for various languages, then Vim was perfect for you. <laughs> if you wanted something that was easy to use and didn't require a whole built-in tutorial just to figure out how to close and save a damn file, then Emacs or Nano was great. Colon WQ exclamation point. What's the problem? Of course, that didn't help all of us poor souls using Windows. No, we had to contend with behemoths like Visual Studio or Eclipse. <laughs> then along came Atom in 2014 with its lightweight electron-based interface, and I was instantly a fan. For a couple years, I bounced between Atom and the PowerShell ISE, depending on what language I was using. Building on the humble foundation of Electron and Atom came what would eventually replace Atom for most folks, Visual Studio Code. Although it dropped in 2015, VS Code really started picking up steam in 2016 with the addition of extension support. A mere five years later, it is ranked as the most popular development environment tool according to Stack Overflow, 
Alas, the success of VS Code came at the cost of Adam's popularity. GitHub posted an announcement this week that Adam will be sunsetted on December 15th of this year. Of course, since it's open source, you could just fork the repo and continue to, to develop it on your own. But GitHub will no longer be taking an active role in the maintenance or updates of the software. So long, Adam, and thanks for all the fish. Want a free Microsoft certification voucher? Complete a free Microsoft Build Challenge. From the things that should have been in a lightning round item a month ago department, <laughs> in May, Microsoft announced the 2022 version of the Cloud Skills Challenge. In short, there are eight categories to choose from in the Microsoft Cloud family. These include 365 applications, Power Platform, general Microsoft security, as well as developer and IoT, and a couple others that I don't remember because <laughs> I can't count to eight. Shut up, lightning round. Each has a number of Microsoft Learn modules associated with them. Complete them by June 21st, and a week later, Microsoft will credit you with a free CERT exam voucher. I think there's actually a free retake, too. Yeah, and those are about $150 a pop. The specific exams that are available are limited, and the details are available in the official rules link. Important to note, you only get one exam voucher as a part of this challenge, but it appears that Microsoft runs the challenge fairly regularly, which, if nothing else, that means we should have lightning round items fairly regularly, too. <clears throat> oh, um, editor's note, scratch that last part. It's not supposed to be in the script. Oh, oh, okay. <clears throat> Windows 11 22H2, now available for pre-release. Time to start your beta testing engines. Nothing like working for free. Yes, indeed. Microsoft announced that the 22H2 is available for pre-release validation for business customers, essentially meaning that desktop support teams can try loading it on their test fleet and see what apps no longer work right due to whatever arcane and capricious tweaks Microsoft has made in the guts of Windows 11. It should be noted that the vast majority of organizations are still on Windows 10, or possibly even <sighs> Windows 7. But still, your CEO is probably going to demand Windows 11 on their laptop so they can keep up with their buddies, so you better check and make sure that their shit still works. Among the updates included in 22H2 are system-wide live captions, mostly good, a revamped task manager, but why? the ClipChamp video editor, Windows Movie Maker RIP, and updates to the file manager experience. Now, if I had to bet on breaking changes, it, it will be that last one. Mess with Explorer and you mess with a lot. You can download and try out Windows 11 22 H2, so if you're feeling adventurous, give it a spin, let us know how you make out. Mac OS 13 will block USB-C communication by default. Another interesting USB-C tidbit, the next major release of the desktop OS for Macs will block data communications through USB-C by default until such communications are approved by the end user. Hmm. This might sound silly to some, but remember from a few weeks ago where we discussed cables that can have built-in ICUs or other types of active processing material. This miniaturization of these kinds of components means that untrusted cables or accessories could legitimately become a very small attack vector. And it should be noted that this isn't exactly a new idea. 
there have been data blockers for USB for a long time now where the opposite would happen. You plug the blocker into your phone, then the cable into the computer to charge. This meant that you only got the power and the computer wouldn't even be able to attempt to communicate with your device. The update to macOS simply does the same thing, programmatically, in reverse. While this means a few extra steps to make a device trusted, it's very in line with zero trust methodology. This time, it's just playing out in the physical space. Gartner continues its streak of pointing out the blindingly obvious with newest advice on VMware. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Gartner's job is confirming what is already apparent to most of us in the industry. Now, that's not a knock against Gartner or the analysts that work there. Enterprises want to be told what is important by experts, and Gartner fills that yearning. So when I see that Gartner is providing guidance and advice on the VMware acquisition by Broadcom, I'm pretty certain what I'll see. And spoiler, it was exactly what you might think. Here are the key observations, and if you've got your bingo card ready, now's a good time to get it out. Small and medium customers are looking to migrate away due to price and support concerns. Current customers should, tr should try and lock in long-term pricing deals with VMware. Good luck with that. You should also attempt to negotiate exit clauses on any long-term contracts. Slightly more likely. You should also get guarantees of technical enhancements for non-core products. Good luck with that. And finally, define an exit strategy if you don't already have one, especially for non-core products. So that would be anything that doesn't fall under the ESXi, vSphere, vSAN, or NSX umbrella. So uh, pretty much everything else. They're, what's the Horizon 1? Yeah, if you're running Horizon 1, definitely have an exit strategy. Their automation platform also probably have an exit strategy for that. And their security tools? Yeah. Yeah, those might also go by the wayside since they're not going to have the full force of the semantic NCA security tools. I mean, in their defense, nobody uses Carbon Black anyway, so. <laughs> I can think of one company. <laughs> so no surprises here. And Gartner does try to point out some possible benefits. But most of those are about rationalizing the portfolios of products, investing in the core products, and having more folks to draw on for technical expertise. I am very skeptical of the last one, but time will tell. Regardless, current customers are feeling very negative about the deal, with 56% having negative feelings, according to a study by S&P Global Market Intelligence. For C-suite folks, this will be a bit of a wake-up call, and because it comes from Gartner, it carries a certain gravitas. For Broadcom, that $8.5 billion EBITDA number may turn out harder than they think. Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. Congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Our beneficent overlord, Carl II, would be especially proud. We leave it to you to celebrate in the customary manner by swaddling yourself in paper towels and rolling around in a kiddie pool filled with peanut oil, as Carl intended. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 or at Hainer80 respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't. What are you, some kind of nerd? 
We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. Like Emma Dunn.